and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. Happy to have you here with us today. My name is Brian Levinson. If this is your first time joining us and listening, welcome. If you've been here before, we appreciate you coming back. And one way you can help us out at the podcast is by going over to our Patreon homepage. So if you go to patreon.com slash intentional performers, once again, that's patreon.com slash intentional performers. Over there, you can subscribe to the show by giving as little as $2 a month, as much as $10 a month. And it really does help us expand our our reach and helps us generate some revenue so I can continue to produce these and send out this content to you, the listeners. So thank you all for your support. And hopefully you feel compelled to continue to help support us as we build this thing out. Now to today's guest. Seth Goldman is the co-founder and TEO emeritus at Honest Tea. So he started up Honest Tea years ago, and he also is the executive chair of Beyond Meat. So we're going to talk about both companies and the mission behind both of these companies and why Seth believes that they are important as the world continues to change and we continue to think about what we're putting into our body. So Honest Tea specializes in beverages that are just a tad sweet, organic, and fair trade certified. In March 2011, Honest Tea was acquired by the Coca-Cola company, becoming the first organic and fair trade brand in the world's largest beverage distribution system. Honest Tea and Honest Kids, which Seth will talk about, is sold in more than 140,000 stores in the U.S. and Europe, including McDonald's, Wendy's, Subway, and Chick-fil-A. Beyond Meat is also rapidly expanding distribution as the company seeks to expand the availability and accessibility of plant-based protein. And you're going to hear Seth's passion for vegetarianism, for providing quality non-meat options that can produce protein for us. So Seth is really interested and passionate about providing quality ingredients to humans so that they can fuel their body and live a better life. Seth also serves on the board of Ripple Foods, the Yale School of Management, and Bethesda Green, which is an incubator right across the street from my office and is actually in between my office and Seth's office at Honest Tea. So they do amazing work incubating companies that are interested in creating a greener world. So Seth is somebody who is a quote-unquote multitasker, at least that's what he calls himself. He does not like to sit still. He likes to be involved. He 
likes to create, he likes to innovate, and he likes to disrupt. And so Seth is very passionate about making this world a better place socially. And also he believes in capitalism and entrepreneurship, leading the way and driving the force for change and progress. So he's going to talk about his story, his background. He's also an athlete. He still runs. He ran cross country and track at Harvard. He wrestled in high school. He also sang a cappella at Harvard. So Seth is somebody who definitely has a lot of interest and doesn't like to just stay siloed in one thing. And he loves to create and he loves to make an impact. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Seth. And when you do, if you can share it on social media, we would be forever grateful. But without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Seth Goldman. Seth, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really excited to have you here to chat with you today because I've seen you around town. I was supposed to hear you speak at a breakfast event, and then I saw you at a George Washington women's basketball game, which you were at for other reasons outside of George Washington basketball. Right. And then I, I saw you locally in Bethesda hawking tea to, to, <laughs> Always any, hawking tea. <laughs> to yeah. anyone who would who would want to sample it. So I've seen you around town, which is really a testament to you and and the business you've built. And so it's it's good to sit down with you and, and not feel like I'm stalking you and, and actually have a conversation. Conversation. So I'm excited Glad to be here. I'm excited to chat with you. Where I'd love to start is to get a sense of how you came to be you. So what was childhood like for you? Yeah. Uh, talk about family mm-hmm. and upbringing and, and all that good stuff. Yeah. So uh, both my parents were professors, which played an important role in uh, my development because they were um, had very high academic standards, but also I'd say very global in their thinking. My dad was a specialist on the Soviet economy, and my mom was a professor of Chinese history. So there was always a global um, thought, you know, thinking about the world, and and the discussions at the dinner table were not really about sports teams or weather. It was, you know, much bigger than that. And then I had uh, two sisters and a brother uh, who were quite a bit older than me, um, but, um, you know, very engaged in my upbringing. Um, And so... Uh, it was a very, um, I, got a lot, I got a lot of attention in a positive way, which was which was great. And then um, I also had two friends across the street, and we were just really active. So, um, you know, I think for me, the, the, the theme was that I was just always doing something. And so um, even going through high school and college, I was always involved in multiple activities at the same time. And I realize in retrospect now, that was really just multitasking. And I, I kind of thrive on that. Uh, and I guess that's through uh, true through today. Chinese history, what, what was mom's interest in that? You know, I think it started from just a different approach to sort of thinking about history in the world. You know, China is a much older civilization. And so um, what then feeds that is a much longer perspective of how uh, you think about it. And then there is an interest. Her specialty was around how the intellectuals um, would dissent. And of course, you know, in the communist regime, intellectuals who dissented were punished. And then uh, but there was always this, the Confucian theme is around discipline and order and obedience. And so that tension um, or between a, a lot, huge country, huge population where you need to have order and yet the need for the desire of everybody to want to have some free expression. And so I think that was one of the things she really um, focused on. And she was, she was the first, uh, one of the first Western scholars when the, when the Cultural Revolution happened in 1966 through 1976, there was this group of American intellectuals who said, oh, they're really remaking society. And she said, no, you know, this is, 
this is not a good thing. There's there's intellectuals being punished for for trying to express themselves. And so one of the very first people to say this is not um, a good thing when a society does this. That's fascinating. And and dad on the econ side. Yeah. What was what was he like? So he was he was he was a real um, dynamic person. He advised multiple presidents on Russian policy because it was during the Cold War. So it was really a big um, theme. Interestingly, he also was kind of one of the first. He looked at the uh, Soviet economic development and he said that they are just ruining their their environment as they. Uh, on this drive to develop their economy. And so he was really one of the first environmentalists that, that pointed out the, what happens to the ecosystem when, when you think about the economy and, and don't consider its environmental impact. Um, and then he also, but then, so the two of them, you know, during the cold war would look at these two societies that were trying to evolve, trying to change. And, um, it just, you know, highlighted some of the challenges. What, what, what are in, what incentivizes people to work? What's it like? And the one, a few things I can draw. One is uh, socialism doesn't work, right? It just, it, it, it takes away people's, uh, the dynamism of an economy, which, which you absolutely need. And I also really came to appreciate how important entrepreneurs are in changing society, because when you have a huge system and, or a huge economy and big, you only have big companies, you're not going to see new ideas emerge. You're not going to see uh, people uh, act in a dynamic way to create new opportunities and bring new ideas to life. So I know in researching you a bit, you had you have had an interest in politics and studying politics. Right, right. And as I'm hearing you talk, I'm hearing about this perspective that your parents are sharing with you. Yeah. And it really, even though it might have been a while ago, is so relevant today. I yeah. mean, you're talking about socialism. There is a movement <laughs> in this country right now that's pretty strong that's yeah. saying we should be socialist. There is also you have a Green Deal and we're not yeah. going to get too far into politics. Yeah. What I'm really curious about is how your parents helped shape yeah. your perspective yeah. and how you came out of th that dynamic and that relationship with them to foster your own thoughts yeah. and your own, how you see the world. So I was a government major in college and I did, I was active in politics. I worked on a presidential campaign and I, at that, you know, certainly in college thought my Avenue, the the road I would be taking to have an impact was through politics, and and uh, you know I'm now obviously working in the private sector and have really found that the ability to have an impact there is is at least as um, profound as it is in politics. And so for me, what's been so fun is to feel like you know through the work at Honesty we could have an impact on diet, an impact on on obviously the environment through our organic um, agriculture, and then even on economic development in the developing world through our fair trade. Um, policies. And then, you know, the work with Beyond Meat, we can have an impact once again on diet, on the environment, when we look at resource constraints and when we look at the impact or advantages of plant-based protein versus animal-based protein. So I do feel like I'm working on public issues and doing it through the private sector. It, that doesn't mean that I've, you know, uh, ruled out politics forever as a career field, but I will say that what I've enjoyed about the private sector is it's so much more dynamic. It's so much when it works, when it works and when you succeed, the ability to have impact is it can happen without posturing, without playing political games. And so that has been really satisfying. And I want to go back to something you said earlier about being the youngest of four. Yeah. And give me an idea of the age gap because you mentioned yeah. that it was it was quite significant. Yeah, my oldest brother is 10 years older than me, which is, you know, pretty... So basically, by the time he went... I was only, you know, eight years old when he went away to college. Um, and then I have two sisters, one who's nine years older and one who's five years older. And they 
I will say, definitely doted on me. And, and you know, part of that was they got they made me feel um, very special uh, just because they gave me so much attention. But part of what that does is help build your confidence and build your self-esteem. And, and so, you know, maybe it was spoiled a bit, but I, I, I hope that I've used that to try to pass on positive. You know, I, I guess I've come to appreciate it how important it is for people to feel positive and, you know, uh, reinforcement and, and support. And, and, uh, when you have that, you can, it gives you a lot of courage to take, take on all types of things. There's something interesting that you said that resonates with me. So my dad's an entrepreneur, started a business from scratch. Mm-hmm. And when I have sat down with him and had these types of conversations, which I intentionally do with him, he mentions from a young age, he was the oldest yeah. but from a young age. He was the oldest of that whole generation. Yeah. So he was, considered special huh. from the very beginning. He got attention too. Yeah. He got attention. And so yeah. I'm thinking about that word special and yeah. how did your parents, how did your siblings reinforce that notion that, Hey Seth, like you're pretty yeah. special. Well, um, <laughs> you know, they would, they would make a, um, we, we used to do little radio shows and I would sort of be the, you know, the star commentator. And I, I was a bit of a ham, so they would, you know, uh, make uh, sort of hype it up. And it just, it was, it was fun. Obviously it wasn't like I was, um, doing beauty pageants. It was just more fun and, uh, got to, to take risks in a way, in a safe environment and feel like, you know, they didn't always, you know, whether it was performing or singing. And then, you know, interestingly, even though uh, my other, my sisters are musical, I was the one who was definitely out, you know, it was different in different music groups and in school and in plays and that kind of thing. And I think they were a little, they did, they were very positive in the home. But I don't think they sort of had enough confidence to go out and perform that much in front of people. And if you look at your siblings and you, what are the values that you think you yeah. all share? Oh, I think we all really share this commitment to social justice, a commitment to, to a really strong high ethical code, um, you know. Um, very much about trusting each other, respecting each other, always, always emphasizing and prioritizing family over other uh, things. And so we still are a very close family. We get together several times a year, all of us, um, which is, is not harder to do these days, but, but something we really stick to. So, um, and, and that has really helped. Um, and I think the other thing is always, and this we get, for, especially from my mother, which is almost a Chinese concept of harmony within the family. So we, all, we don't all have the same political views or the same views of the world, but um, that we have really, had, you know, and I, I always am thankful for this, haven't had ever had conflicts. My, my dad passed away a few years ago, and it was the most... Un, I mean, it was, we were all sad and mournful, but there was no drama about any of the estate issues that come up sometimes. It was just like, whatever, you know, somebody wants, we respected. Awesome. And to go back a little bit, you mentioned I was into music and doing musicals. Yeah. And then I know you also were an athlete. So yeah. cross country track, right. wrestling. Yeah. So paint the picture of what high school was like for yeah. you. Yeah. Well, it really was this multitasking thing. So I was in uh, yeah, different singing groups in the musical, president of the school. Uh, I did wrestling. I was not a good wrestler, but I really got a lot out of it. So it was a very um, positive experience. Overall. What did you What did you get out of wrestling? Because I work yeah. with wrestlers, uh-huh. and, and for those that don't know about wrestling, <laughs> it is a grueling, grinding, it is. tough, tough sport. And then mentally, like you work your butt off. Yeah. And then mentally, you have to get your mind into a place where it's you versus another person. Yeah. They're not subbing you out. Yeah. There's no hiding. Yeah. You're literally in a singlet. Yeah. And <laughs> it's it's mano y mano, and there's really not anywhere to hide. Yeah. And exactly. so, what was wrestling like for you? Well, that was it. Was all those things and. And then you add the fact that I was not good at it. So I, 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 um, I, 
started wrestling in 10th grade and I had never wrestled before, but there was an opening on the team. So I was a starter as a 10th grader and just, you know, no experience. And that first season, I think I was one and nine and I won. The one was when somebody didn't show up, I got the forfeit. So, you know, um, basically once or twice a week I was getting humiliated and, um, you, you have to basically sort of re renew your hope and say, okay, well, I'm going to go out this time and try to do better. And, and, uh, especially when I, you know, given the background, I told you where I'd always sort of had that positive confidence to go out and fail uh, and not just fail, but really, you know, literally be, you know, put on your back is um, hard. And I remember one match, my brother was, uh, my parents didn't go to my wrestling matches, but my older brother did. Uh, he was in business school at the time. And um, he said, you know, he, he was always supportive. And then one match, he said, you know, that match I saw, you, you didn't, you didn't fight. You didn't, you, you know, you kind of gave up. And that was when he was most disappointed. And I, I, you know, from then on, I resolved I would never, I'm, I wasn't, it wasn't that I was never going to lose. I, I did lose, but I was never going to give up. And so that feeling of fighting on your back, uh, fighting off your back is really important. And, and it was especially important launching on his tee in the early years, a lot of tough moments. And so having that resilience um, was something I did develop in wrestling. Did you stick with wrestling after that freshman No, year? I did. No, I, yeah, I mean, I, I wrestled through high school. I wrestled through my senior year um, and had some great matches. I remember at the end, in fact, sort of by the time I got to my senior year, I was more like a 500 wrestler, which was better than when I started. And um, at the championship tournament, which just happened this past weekend, for I was sort of following my high school wrestling team. And um, I remember I got in a match against a guy who... who um, I had wrestled before, someone who I'd known, and we went into overtime, and I won. And my brother was there, and it was just a really neat moment that, like, you know, okay, I, I, I fought all the way through and uh, came out on top. And that was just uh, – that was, like, one of those moments where I felt, okay, that was just – that was a real confidence builder. And then I, I think I went on and lost the next match. But <laughs> the point was that, um, you know, by the time I – every time when the season was over, I felt, boy, if I can make it through that kind of experience. And the other part about wrestling that, that you know, in the description you didn't mention was we were cutting weight. So you would, you know, be sitting in the bathtub at night sweating and, and have to – you know, I was growing at the time. So I was really hungry because I, I had to keep weight, you know, through the season. Uh, so I always had that kind of hollow look in my eye. <laughs> and so it was always a, a great feeling once the season was over. Like I made it. Um, you know, I, I, I prove my, prove some things to myself. There's something amazing though, that you're talking about. There's a dichotomy there of, all right, you're still special, but you're not spoiled. Yeah. And, and there's yeah. a distinction there. And yeah. so you still were special, but there's something in you that even though you weren't good yeah. in the beginning, you stuck yeah. with it because a lot of people would say, well, I'm not good at this. I'm yeah. just going to quit. Yeah. But for you, there was some sort of grit in you that decided to stick with yeah. it. So I'm curious where that, yeah. came, where that well, came from. Well, there's an important difference, right, between being spoiled and feeling special. You know, feeling special means people are able to give you a sense of what makes you you and unique and, and positive. Getting spoiled is you get whatever you want, and and I usually associate it with a lot of material. Entitlement. Um, yeah, entitlement. And, and 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 that material things will make you happy. And so I, I'm confident in saying I was never spoiled. I'm confident in saying my my we my wife and I have three sons, they were never spoiled. Um I I, I do think they all felt special, but I don't think they ever spelt, felt spoiled. It's an amazing thing. I have two little kids, a three year old and a two year old. Yeah. And my wife and I just the other day were talking about how our son, our three year old son is special. Yeah. And so is our two year old daughter. And but our son, because he's so well behaved, sometimes people just kind of like let him 
yeah. go through. And we said, we want to acknowledge that he's special mm-hmm. because it's important that he realizes like he's got some gifts and he, yeah. should, he should be able to use those. And we also have to remind him uh, to challenge him and to, for example, he always wants us to help us put his pants on when yeah. he doesn't need help. <laughs> he can do it himself. Yeah. And, and that line as a parent is really difficult it because is. a lot of times it's easier for us to just pull his pants yep. on for him. Yep. And yep. so I'm trying to figure that out as I think about the hardest job I've ever had, which is parenting. Yeah. And I don't really think I have an idea of what I'm doing, but I'm trying and I'm thinking about your, there's something instilled in you that I still am curious about. So what allowed you, you said, you know, it sounds like successful in the classroom, successful, I'm assuming in running, which will, I'd love to unpack mm-hmm. with you, uh, successful maybe in theater a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so, so, but why keep with wrestling, which by the way, you're talking about, you, you know, weight cutting. It's not, yeah. it's not always fun. It's not, no, but I knew runners. I was getting something out of it after that first season when I was one and nine, that would have been the natural point to say, okay, I made it through the season. I'm done. But I, um, well, first of all, I never, I, I never interested in quitting on something. And, and that is certainly a, you know, a theme that goes through my Does life. Does that come from mom and dad? Uh, it almost more comes from, from my brother. Like, you know, you, you, you give your word or you commit to something, you stick with it. Now, technically you could say, okay, I did that first season. Then I can say, I'm going to do something else. Um, but, um, you know, I knew at the end of that season, I, I felt so confident, even though I had done poorly, I'm like, wow, I, I got so much better. I worked so much harder. I'm in better physical shape than I was now. I'm ready, you know, I'll be better next season too. So you're hitting on something there that I think is so important, which is where does confidence come from? Yeah. And you asked me before we fired up the mics, yeah. well, what do I work with athletes on? Yeah. And if you ask an athlete, what's the one mental skill you want to have? They yeah. would say confidence. Yeah. And just last night I was doing a presentation for a club soccer team in the area and one of the parents came up to me afterwards and talked about his lack of confidence at times. And then his son's lack of confidence. Mm. And I talked about how confidence, a, the mechanics of confidence comes from our self-talk, our dialogue, what we say to ourselves. So even after going one and nine, the dialogue you're having with yourself is, well, I've learned a lot. I've grown a lot. I'm getting better. And that gives you a sense of confidence. And then B, this notion of moving towards competence. And if mm-hmm. we realize, hey, I now know how to do this, yeah. then our confidence can be Get built you, from yeah, there. That's right. People often think that confidence only comes from results. And it's just, I think, a fallacy because do you need confidence to get the results or how chicken versus egg situation? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Right. I mean, obviously, the more you're familiar with something, the more confident you get to. Um, yeah, and I saw, you know, it was really fun. My oldest son wrestled and he, you know, he got to, he, he placed in the state tournament. So he was much, much better than I was. And it was interesting to see him and his team, how they went. And some kids came in and were confident, even though they didn't have the skills and, and you know, just they were confident because they'd done other things athletically well. And there's some kids that do have the skills and lack the confidence. Yeah, And that's so right. it's, I, I love chatting about confidence because I think it's misunderstood in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think it can be developed. I know it can be developed. Yep. If you really work on the inner dialogue and that inner game, then the outer game of, of showing confidence, feeling confidence tends to, tends to come up from that. Yeah. Cross country track running. When did that come into your life? So that was interesting because I had gone into high school as a soccer player and uh, two things happened. One was that whenever uh, at the beginning of practice, we'd always have to go on a long run. And I was always, you know, right at the front of the pack on that. And I wasn't as good a soccer player, I think. So my 10th grade I, um, or 11th grade, what happened was I did not make the varsity team. I was going to be on JV again. I said, oh, well, that's not as interesting. And then I had some friends on the cross country team who saw me running 
head of that group, they said, why don't you join this team? And so I did and, and uh, you know, quickly was, um, you know, right at, toward the top of that team. And our team that year became the uh, high school that we won the division champions and then won the regionals. Uh, and we did the same thing the next year as seniors. And so um, I ha- my school didn't have a track team at the time. It was just cross country. So when I went to college, I, I um, went for um, did cross country. And then it, that then they expected to do track as well. So I basically became a three season athlete um, through college. And running, is it something that you love to do, or is it yeah, something you yeah, did I still do it. It's been a great way to um, maintain um, that. You know, getting either an hour, so roughly an hour outside on my own, is just something I really value. I don't do it every day now. I'll, I'll exercise every day, but I don't. I won't always run just because my legs will get tired, my feet will get sore. Um, but that an hour of exercise every day, where I have the chance to really be with myself, uh, even if I'm listening to music, um, and, and I'm probably half the time with music, half the time without, uh, is just a really important way for me to to process ideas, clear my head. And, um, you know, every once in a while for travel or some reason, I won't get the chance to do it. No, I'll always feel a little bit in a fog. Interesting. And going back, so uh, theater, what, what were you like theater-wise? Yeah, I, I um, enjoyed, it was especially musical theater. I was in these singing groups and uh, just loved per- performing, um, really enjoy, I enjoy great, you know, well-performed music. And uh, um, also there's a little bit of a showman in me. So, um, you know, we used to have to do some hammy things and ironic, uh, not ironic, but interestingly, our, our, my um, roommates and I had a rap group in college and it was uh, very early on. This was 1987. So pre-Beastie Boys, we were um, three white rappers that um, we had a lot of fun. We did some some concerts in, in college. It was fun. And you went to Harvard? Yeah. So three white Harvard <laughs> our, our, our rap name, the group name was The Educated Devastated. <laughs> I like it. And music? Music play a big role? You yeah, I was in, in I did choral music and acapella music through college, in fact. I was in an acapella group in college as well. Um, and so always enjoyed that. All right, so, so I'm going to pause right there. So you're at Harvard. Yeah. You're running, you yeah. know, you're... You're running every season. Yeah. And you're in an acapella group. Yeah. There was one season. So I did acapella for two years. By the um, end of sophomore year, I said, I can't really do both well. I'm not going to be able to be a runner and a singer at, at, you know, the kind of level. And, of course, do (laughs) academics as well. So I stopped acapella after my sophomore year. All right. So I understand you're someone who likes to run and do a lot of different things. Yeah. Where would you slow down? Where would you slow down? Or are you someone I wake no, up just, super early? I, and yeah, go. just put it all on there. I, I, I mean, for me, it was um, like I say that multitasking was just something that I thrived on. So I, I think I did better in everything when I had all of that to do. It gives you energy going through those. Yeah, it, it just never you know nonstop. You're always doing something. Um, so I probably wasn't as <laughs> uh, doing as much reflection and quiet time, but um, I was just going at it. And I, I also wasn't doing as much sort of socializing or partying. I would get to know people through these activities that I did. And that was a neat way for me to have a, a real span of um, com- people I interacted with, you know, my um, the athletes and the track team and the mu- musical people in the singing group. But you were a maximizer. You were someone who wanted to max out the day. You wanted yeah. to max out what you were doing. Yeah. And- and you wanted to do a lot of different things and do them well. Right, right. And, and what's underneath that? What's motivating you in those spaces? Well, just that I liked all those things. I liked all the, the people I was interacting with. Um, I had the opportunity 
to do them at a high level. I mean, I had always, you know, through high school, always wanted to be in an acapella group in college. And then um, with track, it was neat that, you know, I was able to, I was getting better. My times were improving. Um, I got to be part of a team that was um, a really great group of people and, and uh, enjoyed that as well. And, and what comes for you after college? What, what do you, what do you decide to so, do? So, yeah, I had, um, so I had not surprisingly, maybe given my parents' background, I had studied economic reform in China and the Soviet Union. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great um, to sort of live for some time in those countries to understand if, um, sort of if what I studied, how much, it, how much of it reflected reality. And so initially I had applied for a grant. Um, they have these travel grants you can do at Harvard. And I applied for one. I didn't get it. And I said, well, okay, I didn't get the grant, but that doesn't mean I can't do what I wanted to do. So I ended up getting, going to China, um, basically went in with just a, <laughs> a backpack and I had a few names of people to look up and I did and eventually ended up getting a job teaching uh, at a university in China for a year, um, which was a great way to live in Beijing, to um, learn the language a bit, to learn about um, what was happening in people's lives and obviously to interact with my students. But Seth, I'm, so... Mom and dad, were they supportive of you doing this? You yeah. just graduated from yeah, Harvard, right. and now I'm going to go to China for a year? You know, I think they understood. It was in, um, it was a good way to learn. It was actually, in retrospect, an excellent way to learn about myself. I was out there. I, you know, there were moments I I remember one time I went to visit. I had, it was interested in going to Hunan, where um, Mao had grown up. I wanted. I had read about it, and I went in, uh, got into the train station late. It was like midnight, and I walk out, and, and the, um, it's dark. There are very few lights on. And I realized this, you know, for hundreds of millions of people around me, there's, I don't know anybody. And I was like, okay, this is just me. Like, and I didn't, you know, I didn't speak the language that well. Let's see what you can, <laughs> can I find a hotel and just sort of navigating unfamiliar environments. And so it was a great um, way for me to, to develop and learn. And, you know, you learn in college, you, you may gain some um, knowledge. You don't necessarily gain wisdom. So I gained a lot more wisdom and maturity being out in, in China on my own and then, you know, in Russia as well, you know, operating in unfamiliar environments um, and navigating and finding a way. Ultimately, that's what an entrepreneur does. And I was just doing that in a different context. I love what you just said, which is wisdom isn't the same as essentially maximizing. Yeah. So yeah. you can have a lot of maximizers at Harvard. I would imagine almost everybody at Harvard yeah. is, is a maximizer. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're wise. Yep. And, yep. and like you said, wisdom comes from maybe that hour run that you're doing Yeah, in the where you can crystallize and put it together. Exactly. Yeah. There's, I always, um, I speak at BCC every year to Coleman McCarthy's class, and I always um, talk about that. that you, okay, you're gaining lots of information here. But that doesn't mean, you know, and you may be getting good grades for reprocessing that information. It's when you can synthesize it, analyze it, and recreate it or reproduce it in a way that gives insight and enlightenment. That's that's when you're really gaining knowledge. And there's also a thread that you just hit on, which is in China, I had to become fearless. And yeah. I had to be able to just figure it out and problem yeah. solve. Yeah, navigate unfamiliar environments, for yeah. sure. And, and so I'm, I want to go one step back, and then we'll take one step mm -hmm. forward. As you think about acapella, and you think about uh, performing at an elite level in college as far as running, especially track, which was unfamiliar to you as well. Right. I'm curious about your mindset while you're between the lines. So um, whether you're in China and you're having to try to figure out yeah. what you're going to do next or you're on stage singing or you are in between the lines, um, you know, on a track 
or you're in business and yeah. you are quote unquote performing, I would love to get a sense of what your mindset is when you're doing those things. Yeah, I think um, there's always, so one thing I always uh, recognize is the more that you can focus on the task at hand, the better you'll be. And, and, and in a way that sounds counter to what I've been saying, because I do some multitasking. So you could say, well, you've always got to have so many things going on in your mind. But the key to multitasking well is that when you're doing what you're doing, you're, you're fully focused on it. Um, and so, you know, if I'm running, but instead of running, I'm thinking about, you know, oh, I've got this homework assignment or I've got this, you know, uh, something I owe somebody, then you're not going to really maximize your performance. So I think even uh, then, or when, when you're singing, <laughs> if you're, you, in, especially in acapella group, you really got to focus to make sure you're singing your part. And if you're, if you're instead worrying about your, you know, my, my 1500 time, then that's not going to do well for the singing group. So, um, when you're doing what you're doing, you need to try to block everything else out. I love that. And multitasking gets uh, an interesting rap because the science of multitasking actually suggests that it is what you just said, which is you can't actually do the two things at once. No, it's no. about shifting from one to the next yeah. and then doing the deep work while you're in that space. That's it. And what you're talking about is focusing on the task is really being deep on what you want to do with that task. Yeah. I love this phrase, be where your feet are. So yeah. when I'm running, let's be running. Yeah. When I'm doing acapella, let's do acapella. When I'm in China, let's yeah. be in China. Yeah. Is there anything that you would do to train that? Or Well, how one thing I'll that? just say uh, along that theme that I've seen. So I was... I'd like to think I would have done this, but when our um, sons were growing up, there really weren't cell phones. And so I was with them 100%. I see a lot of parents these days who are sort of hanging out with their kids, but they're really on their phones. They're not with their, they're physically there, but they're not mentally there. And uh, boy, that, that is such a, uh, I don't want to say crime, but it feels like such a um, wrong way to, to both, to be with, to be with your children. And so, um, you know, I think we were fortunate that I, <laughs> I feel fortunate. I was very, very late to adopt cell phones because I, I knew that would be a threat um, to sort of having that relationship with my kids. And so I didn't get one until most of them were, you know, much older. And, and would you do anything specifically to practice that idea of what I'm hearing is presence or being present, yeah. or being in that moment or being in that space, any techniques or skills or strategies? That well, you it use? really was just a discipline. So for example, I, coached my youngest son's baseball team through, I guess, till, um, about 13. And, um, that was really, uh, it, it was right during the peak of, you know, some of honesty's most intense years. Uh, but it was great to do because it, it instilled a discipline. Like I, and I was driving carpool. So, you know, even if there were terrible things going on in the off with the business, which are <laughs> often were, it's like, I got to leave. I got to go drive the boys. You know, I can't, so, you know, what's going to happen? Well, We'll solve it when I get back because I've got to drive, you know, three boys to baseball practice. They're counting on me. And and so when I'm at practice, I'm not on the phone talking to other people or I'm not texting or, you know, emailing. I'm with, with you know, in this case, my son and, and his his teammates. And um, you could say, well, that that um, that basically built in a discipline for me. Um, and there's a wisdom piece to that, which is not in line with maximizing because yeah. the maximizer might say, no, I've got to maximize what I'm doing mm -hmm. with honesty, but it goes back to also values and what you said your parents helped instill. And one yeah. of the ones you talked about was family and the value yeah. of family. It also helps signal to the rest of the organization, how I emphasize my family. And, and I was going to obviously be sympathetic if they had family commitments that they had to honor. It also helped give a little bit of perspective on the business as, as 
desperate or um, intense as things got. It's like, you know what? We'll be back here tomorrow. We'll solve it. Like th- it, there were there were a lot of challenges, but they were all fixable. And I have this thought in my head that I'm just curious about is parents were both academics. Yeah. Did did they encourage you to not be an academic? No, they were, I would say, especially my mom was a little frustrated that I was doing so many things that weren't academically related. And so I still tease her because, um, you know, I had roommates who, one of my roommates, my freshman, sophomore year were hockey players. And she's, and, and they were like, well, you're at Harvard, you know, hockey players doesn't sort of feel like the image. And it turns out that, you know, one of my roommates is now the head of the Central Bank of, of London uh, another one managed the Boston Bruins to the Stanley Cup, you know, so they were, um, and then of course on the track side as well, they would say, well, you're doing all this running. Why shouldn't you be doing more academics? But, you know, I'm still in very close touch with a lot of my runner running friends who've gone on, gone on to do amazing things. So, you know, um, it was, it's not that academics weren't important and they did have high expectations for me there, but it was, they always understood with me at least that, that I, um, you know, academics was going to be part of what I would um, be doing, but it wasn't going to be the only thing I would be doing. And talk about preparation, because we've talked a lot about the performance side and how you would go about managing and multitasking that. Yeah. But what was your preparation like for all these things? Because it's, you're running from one thing to a net to another. Yeah. I'm wondering, all right, well, when's our homework? When is when am I practicing for yeah. running? When am I with the acapella group? Yeah. Yeah. I think in general, that's that when you can when you can really be present where you are, um, then, you know, I, I don't need a big transition. Uh, and I think sometimes it frustrates my wife that, you know, we can um, <laughs> challenging things can go on, be going out of the business or in the family. And I can go make a switch and, and do what I need to do to get business done. I mean, in the, in the business, most vividly, the year we launched, the, 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 really the day we launched the business, I was um, the day before my first sales meeting. Um, we had a presentation to Freshfields Whole Foods, the, the local branch of Whole Foods back in, this is 1998. And so the day before that sales call, my um, wife comes in. I'm in the kitchen with Barry, my co-founder. We're brewing up cups of tea or thermoses of tea to bring to Whole Foods. And she came back from a doctor's appointment with our four-year-old son. And, and it turns out he was his aorta was constricted. He was going to need to have major surgery to open up his aorta. And it was going to have to be done within a matter of weeks. And, you know, in retrospect, had we had that appointment before I launched Honesty, I might not have launched Honesty because it's like, hey, we've got, you know, a son with real health challenges here. Um, This is not the right time to be going out taking this kind of risk. But I was already committed. I had the sales call the next day. And uh, in that sales call, I had to put all the, the worries and concerns about my son, you know, in the back of my mind and make sure I could sell Honesty well. And, and, you know, obviously that, that worked out. Uh, and then literally after that sales call, we, within a matter of weeks, were at a children's hospital for two weeks with our son going through intensive care. And, and, um, and so I had to be present for him, but when he was asleep or when, uh, my wife was with him, I would go down into the lobby and work on honesty because it was really during the launch of the business. So, you know, great examples or situations where I had to be able to be focused on what I was doing at the time and do it well 
and then switch gears and, and be present for my son or, or you know, my wife. In sports, we call it controlling the controllables. There hmm. are elements that are in your control, elements that are out of your control. Yeah. You go toward the controllables, you'll find more focus. You go toward the things that are out of your control, you'll find distraction and clutter. Yeah. And so it sounds like you were able to do that. I'm wondering... And what, that's critical yeah. with running, at least. I, you know, I'm sure with other sports, too. But you know, you've got to keep your mind clear. Sometimes you can have like a... I don't know, a song or something going through your head that helps propel you. But otherwise, you've got to just focus on your form and, and really try to be as clear as you can. What's the downside for you? What's the thing that does get in the way? What, what causes you to not be at your best? Um, if something is uh, so, you know, um, impactful that it just you can't clear it, you can't get rid of it. I, you know, last year, my wife and I had we were going through a challenging moment in our relationship. And that was and it, it was really ironically. So we'd been married um, uh, 28 years. So, uh, you know, unusual to have sort of something that um, although I guess it's not that unusual to think of a lot of times people get through a later stage challenge and measure anyway. Um, it was one where it was just an unfamiliar place for me because we've had such a wonderful relationship. And so to feel like, um, wow, we're something that what, what's been so wonderful for so long, all of a sudden isn't, uh, and that was hard to, to get around and it, and it, and it stuck with me. It, well, fortunately we're, you know, I'd say right back in a, in a great place. And, uh, but when something that is so important to you, is feeling so negative. And look, if you know what, we're very fortunate. Our son, as I said, had this health challenge and it came out well. But if it hadn't gone well, if, if you know, um, maybe if something hadn't worked out, that would have been obviously very hard to, to overcome. And what's underneath as far as I'm trying to get at your, your quote unquote dark side? Like, what is yeah. the thing that causes you to not be at your best? Yeah. Well, it's the things. So the things that give me joy, which of course, you know, is my family. And when you, if something there isn't going well, um, then it's very, that's my core. And if my core is not strong, if my core doesn't feel, if it doesn't give me joy, then that, that's going to be something that's going to, you know, impact my performance on other things. And you mentioned dad passing away. Yeah. Uh, what was that like for you and how yeah. did you handle that? He, so he was a wonderful person. He, by the end of his life was not living a great life. He just, he was such a dynamic person. So, um, fun and thoughtful and, and, and intelligent. And by his, um, last five years just continued to decline. So, so while I was sad to lose him, I was, he, he, I remember I, um, was with him once we, we had, um, he used to be on the board of a bank and they came to sort of thank him for all his service when he had to step down from the bank board. And they said, we miss you, Marshall. And he said, I miss me too. And mm. so he, you know, he knew he wasn't, the person he was, uh, had been. And so, and I knew that too. And, and, um, you know, I, I got to say everything I wanted to say to him. He got to, um, feel appreciated. And, and so by the time he died, it was sad, but it wasn't, there wasn't pain because it was, he, he had already, the person I know had already gone really over a period of five years. So I'd sort of been mourning and it wasn't painful. It was sad, but it wasn't painful. And I'd love to go back to your story. And uh, so China, fill in the gaps from China yeah. to starting. Honesty. So did uh, China for a year and then came back. And most importantly, during that hiatus, um, before I went to Russia, I worked on the Dukakis-Benson campaign. I was doing advance work and that's where I met my wife. So um, that was a <laughs> the campaign didn't win, but I did and uh, met my wife. And, and, uh, and then I went to Russia for a year and a half, taught there uh, and then came back after teaching there and um, got the, a job working for Senator Benson as a press secretary for two and a half years and was really enjoying that. 
uh, just before he went to go become Secretary of the Treasury, I had left to go um, run a demonstration program in Baltimore. It was a program that became a model for what um, the uh, National Commission on Service evolved to. So programs like City Year uh, and, and the program I ran were helping to prove that this was a viable thing, and it led to the AmeriCorps legislation. Uh, and then at the end of that um, program, I then then transferred, uh, then switched to uh, Yale School of Management for two years. So that is what I'm, I'm yeah. so curious because now I'm I'm doing the math in my head, but you're yeah. probably around like 30 years old. No, I was. So this was in um, 1993 that I enrolled at Yale. So I was 27, just turned 28. And, and so now you're pivoting out because everything yeah. up until then is. Either. Public sector, nonprofit, and when I was at, in Baltimore, as I said, we be, there was a model for um, AmeriCorps. They brought together all the other model programs from around the country together for it was called Summer of Service, and they spent a week together. And at that program, I saw tons of other people running their programs who were incredibly idealistic but didn't have management skills. And I I, I thought my program it was well run, but um, I knew I could have done better had I had management skills. So I thought, you know. Um, what scared me about the, that gathering, that national gathering, was seeing all these people who have all this idealism but no management skills. I said, I need to get management skills if I want to bring something to scale. So that's what I went to uh, Yale for. When I was there, I started to learn about um, the world of what I call mission-driven business, this idea that you can build a business and also have a social or health or environmental agenda, and you can pursue it through the business. Uh, and that kind of was a real awakening for me. And so um, I pivoted from thinking I was going to be in the nonprofit world. Uh, and what I say is I, I stayed in the world of national service, but I switched to, uh, from the uh, nonprofit or public sector to the private sector. It's such an interesting dynamic because you do see what we call do-gooders or Mother Teresa types who pour their blood, sweat, and tears into a nonprofit, but they don't have any idea of how to build it without themselves. And uh, I've been fortunate to collaborate with some nonprofits and, and be involved with some nonprofits. And I find the ones that have lasting sustainability are the ones that actually run it as a business mm -hmm. and are not thinking that they're a nonprofit. And while they certainly are a nonprofit, they are trying to find ways to be creative so that they aren't so reliant on the government for their funding because their government can pull their funding or yeah. just donors and trying to find ways to be sort of entrepreneurial inside of their nonprofit. I'd be curious to get your thoughts. Yeah. On that. I mean, not every nonprofit is going to um, be able to uh, commercialize what it does. I mean, a homeless shelter, you know, is, is providing a service um, and a safety net, but it isn't something that you can really sort of um, make revenue on. In, in a scalable way. And that's, that's fine. Cause that's what it, that's its work. But, um, there were a lot of, um, businesses that have the potential to have much more positive impact than they do. And there's the opportunity for some nonprofits to find way, you know, some of the services they're providing are things that can um, become revenue generators. And if they sort of think about it in a, in a different way, what I like to think about in both, um, honesty and beyond meat, I think about, are there things that we're accomplishing that a nonprofit would try to, you know, do? And there are. I mean, at Honesty, you could talk about there's there's nonprofits out there trying to make people healthier, trying to cut calories in the American diet, or trying to promote organic agriculture, more sustainable agriculture, or trying to to raise the living standards in the developing world. And those are all things we do at Honesty. And similarly with Beyond Meat, there's there's nonprofits out there trying to convert people to either vegetarian or plant-based diets or have more plant-based diets. 
And we're part of that movement. We do it in a for-profit way, and I think in a very important element of it, um, because you can tell people to eat less meat, um, but when you have a product that makes eating less meat much more enjoyable, then that's a that's a really important part of that equation. So you have this moment in, in grad school where it's like, okay, I can combine maybe a passion for doing good yeah. and a passion for maybe doing well yeah. and combine both of those. And so what bubbles up for you while you're in school? So I learned about a group that was just getting started. Today it's called Net Impact. Uh, at the time it's called Students for Responsible Business, but it is an organization. It was literally getting their, their first conference was my uh, first year in business school. Uh, and 50 people got together in Georgetown to, to discuss how we can use business for to a, create a better world. And so um, that I ended up getting so inspired by that conference that I organized and created the first chapter at Yale um, uh, for Students for Responsible Business. And then I, be, I joined the national board. And so I um, got an internship that first summer with Calvert, which is a, a fund that used to be based in Bethesda. And I was um, doing well, I would say venture capital, but early stage private equity investments in early stage companies that had a mission component to it. And so that was, um, for me, a great introduction to this whole world of mission-driven business, mission-driven impact. And when does honesty come into yeah. the forefront for you? So after business school, I went back and worked for Calvert for two and a half years and was enjoying the work, but also was starting to get an entrepreneurial itch, feeling like, you know... Um, this is a little bit of a corporate situation. And, and I was in the investment side, so I was always, it's an important role investors play in funding these types of companies, but it's not the same level of driving change when you are the investor versus being the entrepreneur. So I, I thought, boy, if I could find the right idea, I would, I'd love to really, you know, roll up my sleeves and, and, and get into the, and be a creator of something like that. And what, what, what about creating was important for you? Oh, uh, well, I had always been, um, building things. So, you know, I, um, in high school, I started up lots of different organizations in college. I started up lots of different organizations. And so, um, for me creating is, is, and even going back to, you know, childhood play, we would, we used to, um, uh, my friend and I would have this, <laughs> it was called town and we'd build, we'd sort of build the town, you know, and that was always the fun part, um, just with blocks and, and, you know, that kind of thing. But so I loved creating things and I wanted to find something I could create. And, and even that nonprofit I ran in Baltimore, you know, when you can build something that you have full ownership of and it's your vision, that's, can be really satisfying and impactful. And was, was there a moment in your upbringing where also making money was important? Do you have any memories of being an entrepreneur as far as no. any of that No. You know, sort I think money is a byproduct of success or can be a byproduct of success. It doesn't have to be. You can be successful and not have money. But, you know, what I knew, uh, if, if I could create something meaningful, it would there'd be money for it, whether it was a nonprofit or, or for-profit. It wouldn't be that I would make so much money, but just that it would it, it focus more on doing something impactful that you believe in. And, um, it'll, things will work out. So, uh, you know, I, as I said, going into business school thought I, I knew I was going to be an entrepreneur. I just thought it was going to be in the nonprofit side. <laughs> and uh, ironically, when I became a for-profit entrepreneur launching on T, there was less profit <laughs> for the first 10 years, you know, there was no profit. So, um, I still was a nonprofit entrepreneur just in, in the private sector. And just walk us through how Honesty came about. Yeah, so I um, was working at Calvert in the investment fund doing marketing and sales. I had given a presentation in New York City 
This was in 1997. And then after the presentation, I um, met up with a track team friend of mine and we went for a run in Central Park. And after the run, we went to just grab a, you know, a drink and, and talk, a non-alcoholic drink, I should say. And uh, when we got to the store, we looked in the cooler and there's just, I said, boy, there's really nothing here. He said, well, there, what do you mean? There's lots of options. I said, I know, but they all, they all have um, the same level of sweetness, which was too sweet for what I was thirsty for, or, or their water, and I don't want water. Why isn't anyone making a drink with less calories? And so, and, you know, um, we, we just sort of said, oh, that's that's missing. I think at the day that day we ended up blending, you know, fizzy water with some juice or something like that. But on the way home, I, uh, on the flight home, cause I had flown up there for the day. Um, I recalled how, when I had been at the Yale school of management, my professor Barry Nailbuff and I had talked about the fact that this was something missing. So I emailed him. I said, you know, this is still not, this is still an opportunity. This, no one has really captured this space. And I, probably said, you know, I think I'm ready to do something about this now. And so he emailed back, says, what do you mean? Um, it just turned, and he says, you know, I'm interested in this too. And, and then as we talked, he had just come back from India where he had been done doing a case study of the tea industry. He had come up with the name Honest Tea. So that just gave incredible um, branding and, and, and sort of direction to the, to the idea. So you create a partnership with him, but he's yeah. on campus. Yeah, he's still a professor. He wasn't leaving his day job. We, um, But we started going back and forth that fall. This is the fall of 97, sharing ideas and brand names and approaches and thoughts. And by the time we got to sort of November, it was getting more serious. We had some prototypes we had created. We had discussed some label ideas. And I said, all right, there's enough here. This is worth you know, pursuing. And so... In December of um, that year, I uh, handed in my resignation at, to, at Calvert and said, I'm going to go do this. And then I launched it in uh, February. And resigning from that, was anybody telling you you're kind of crazy? Oh, yeah, of course. So, I, well, I, I was, you know, at Calvert, I had, I was, or, you know, moving up quickly in the organization and, and getting good opportunities. And so, of course, it's odd that someone in the investment business would say, I'm going to go launch a beverage company. Uh, and, but you know, who was the, to me, the, the folks who were my most important constituents, which were my wife and my parents were a hundred percent behind it. And they said, this is great. I love it. Uh, my parents were the first to invest. My wife said, you know, I knew you were going to do something. I just didn't know what it was going to be. So let's, let's do it. So they knew that eventually you would scratch that entrepreneurship itch. Yeah. It might be social. It might be private, but you, they knew that was inside of you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, we had just had our third son. So we had, we had three boys all under the age of five at the time we sort of made this decision, but, um, it's like, well, this is, this is, you know, this, the, you can't time this kind of thing. You either feel like you're going to do it or not. How do you develop your relationship with fear? Um, you know, I think it has to do with confidence. You, you, it doesn't mean you're not afraid, but you, are you, how good do you, you know, the excitement about what the opportunity overcomes the fear. And what, what does excitement feel like for you? Oh, it's this feeling like this, we could really build, build something. It's creative. It's a challenge, but it's a challenge that I'm willing to take on. I obviously don't, there's a lot I don't know. And in fact, I remember my my brother sent me a long letter about all the reasons this was not necessarily a good idea, which was I had no experience. <laughs> and it's hard. It is hard. It was, everything he said in that letter was accurate. It's hard work. You don't know what you're doing. 
Um, and, uh, but for me, it was like, all right, but I'm willing to take it on. I'm willing to give it a try. So, um, you know, there, there's off as is often the case, especially in the beverage industry for, for some reason, the, the success stories are from people who come from outside the industry and look at it in a fresh way. So they, they aren't uh, constrained by, um, convention. And did you have a dream for what this could become? We did. We had the dream of making this a global brand that stood for authenticity, that stood for health and transparency. And, um, you know, uh, that's that's really what we're, we're still building. And it's interesting being in the Washington, D.C. area and your background in, in government and politics. Yeah. What was it like being a brand here and being honest tea in Bethesda, Maryland? Oh, it was just, you know, um, I, I hadn't, uh, it was fine. I mean, I, I didn't, it wasn't like I had been part of some other food community. So I was like, well, this is just what we'll do from here. There's, I remember at the time, in fact, some investor from Boston had come down and said, well, you know, look, it's fine if you run the business from Bethesda, but you should set up a PO box in New Hampshire, Vermont, which is going to make it you know, seem more natural. I said, well, number one, that's not honest. I said, well, number two, what's wrong with Bethesda? And uh, we've certainly, you know, over the years been trying to help build uh, Bethesda's credentials as a, a green and conscious city. And of course, I've, I've uh, co-founded an organization called Bethesda Green, which is now uh, 10 years old. And um, is, is we have a, it's just across the street from this office. And um, we have a green business incubator there where we've got a bunch of entrepreneurs working on their green business idea. When you talk to those people or interact with yeah. them, what's some advice that you give to them? <laughs> well, um, a lot of the things I've learned. So one of them is certainly, you know, make sure you're taking care of yourself. You can't, you, just as I said, you got to have a strong core um, so that you can ha- both inspire and guide others, but also take care of yourself. You've really got to have a, a a very well defined point of difference. Like you know, some someone's got a better salsa or you know a better bar. I'll take food energy bar, food bar. If that's not enough, it's it, even if it's better tasting, it has to be. You get it in a second. You get sort of the quick. You know, just like when when in Hollywood, when someone's pitching an idea, they you know the elevator pitch. You've got to be able to understand really quickly why it's different and better and advantageous. And if you were to say what made Honest Tea better, what would it be? Yeah. So for Honest Tea, it was less sweet. started with less sweet and then it came organic and this, and then became fair trade. And it was always this often underlying all of that is authentic taste, authentic commitment to the ingredients. I was fun. When I started the company, as I said, that first year I was doing it all on my own, but I needed someone to help me figure out how to, um, how to like bottle tea. I'd never done that before. And I, 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 um, reached out to a guy who I'd been introduced to up in Toronto, and I sent him sort of oh, just a one-page description of the business. And um, he said, you know, he and he used to be in the music business before he got into the beverage business. And he says, you know, in music, uh, we used to say when you hear a few a few bars of a song, you can tell whether or not it's going to be a hit. He said, I read the one page. I said, I can tell this is going to be a hit. Hmm. And so um that a, a, an early stage business concept needs to be that clear have that much clarity but it's interesting because a lot of people that i follow or listen to they have an idea and people write them emails like what you got and yeah. say this is this is crazy this isn't going to work so i'm i'm wondering how yeah. and I, I heard you actually say in in an interview that you actually had a little bit of hubris to actually get oh, yeah. started for sure so i'm curious how you are able to take in data and content and feedback from others and yeah. still trust your gut or your instinct. Well, and just to, just to build on that a little bit, um, cause what attracted me to beyond me, cause I did not start beyond me, but 
it just so happened my wife read an article about the company, and there were only a few quotes from the CEO founder, but there were two quotes in there that uh, spoke to me enough, clearly enough, that I said, this is an idea I want to be part of, and, and, and obviously it's become a very powerful business and concept, but the two ideas were, number one, um, we should be able to, we believe we'll be able to use science to replicate the taste and texture of meat using only plants. And um, the, uh, the other part of that vision is that we have the opportunity to transform the meat case into the protein case. So re basically redefining what we, how, what we think of meat. It's not only something that comes from an animal, but can come from, uh, from plants in the same taste and texture. But to me, so just to highlight, those, it was very, really two simple <laughs> sound bites, but I got enough. I said, that's something I can get excited about. But how do you respond to people that don't get it? They don't either get Beyond Meat. They don't either get mm -hmm. Honest Tea. And they say, oh, what? this this isn't going to work. Well, it depends who I'm, you know, in what context. If it's someone who's an investor says it's not going to work, I'll say, okay, you know, we'll go to the next person and find someone who will. If it's a buyer, I'll say, um, well, it may not be something that appeals to you, but then I have to show them data why it appeals to others, you know. Uh, and so what we've seen with Beyond Meat now, and this is this is some data we got from Kroger, so um, we talk about why we want to carry the key with Beyond Meat is getting it carried in the meat section of the grocery store. And most of the buyers will push up some resistance because they'll say, well, I like to sell this. I sell my vegan products in the, you know, right in the vegetarian section in the freezer. We show them the data from Kroger where we're selling, which is the largest chain in the country. Uh, and in Kroger, 93% of the people buying the Beyond Burger um, are also buying meat which tells us uh, that this is a product appealing to meat eaters. So data like that is powerful and makes it um, very compelling. And so now we, have, um, we don't have retailers pushing back on it anymore. So um, you know, if it's an investor, and I can't, I'm not going to try to convince an investor who you know, doesn't believe in the idea. And, and obviously with Honest Tea, I was, if I, my hit rate was probably 1 out of 20. I'd speak to 20 investors and one would invest. So you know, for the ones who did invest, it worked out very well and and you know i so <laughs> the only consolation when i was told no was like, well they'll they're missing out and i bet your experience wrestling helped you because you were used to oh yeah, yeah that's why that one out of ten was my <laughs> success rate it's there even more successful yeah. in wrestling than yeah. you were with investors that's right speaking of investors so how do you handle their desire often is to exit and to yep. Get mm -hmm. their money back and hopefully yeah. get a return. Yeah, with building a culture that is honest, that's yeah. authentic. And how do you how do the you? The key there that? is to be aligned, right? We I have to be as transparent as I can be about what I'm going to do. So, um, first of all, any investor with honesty, I would say, look, this is this is going to be at least ten years. I'm going to have your money because that's how you should be thinking about this. And obviously, as it got later in the business, it it, it wasn't the case, but. Um, and I also shared, this is what the brand stands for. This is what we're going to do. So when we made things organic, that wasn't a surprise. We, when we chose to go fair trade, that wasn't a surprise. Uh, and they all appreciated that that was what actually made the brand meaningful and powerful. So as long as you're clear and transparent about what you're going to do, uh, and look at Honest Tea, our founding investors made more than 23 times their money. So uh, we held it, and, we, and it was almost exactly 10 years to the day from when we took those first checks that we returned them uh, and talk about Coca-Cola because yeah. I think when when you see it from the outside looking in, you yeah. see honesty. You've you've got these values. You're mission oriented. Yeah. And, and look, Coca-Cola does wonderful things in the world too. But I've been to Atlanta. I've there. There's a lot going on at Coca-Cola. Yep. Yep. So uh, talk about that partnership. Sure. And, and well, it was the works. same when when Coke you know reached out and wanted to explore an investment in honesty. 
we were very clear about what we stood for. And we said, that's what, and, and that's what's powerful. That's what inspires me and inspires our consumers. And that's exactly what we want to continue. And, and what we heard from Coca-Cola is that's important uh, because that's not something we have in our portfolio. And so um, uh, we want you to keep that. And, and, and they really lived up to that and they continue. So it's now, Honesty is 21 years old. We've been part of Coca-Cola or had them as an investor longer than we've been an independent company. And um, the brand has really retained all of the key attributes that going in um, to Coke's uh, involvement. And so um, I think they've certainly upheld that part of the deal, that they've, they've respected uh, what we stand for and allowed us to continue to build it. And you mentioned management earlier and how important it is to be able to manage. Yeah. What, what makes a good leader? Yeah, it's something I really think about a lot, and I'm other boards of companies, and I've seen it. So, you know, the simple definition is, um, number one, you have to have a, a compelling and clear vision, right? You have to be able to articulate uh, an idea about what you want to build and, and, and communicate that, inspire that in other people. Uh, the next step is you have to find the right people. You have to get them in the right positions to help execute that vision, and then you have to give them the resources um, to do that. That's, that's the job of the leader. And so each, each of those three tasks is, is, you know, <laughs> you can write a book about, um, putting together the right vision. And, and when you bring the people together and managing them and inspiring them, giving them clarity, helping support them and helping, you know, push them or remove them when they're not executing well. And that's a continuously dynamic process because the organization is always changing. So the people you have, to help launch may not be the same people you want you want to have to help scale, um, and so um, there's a real leader needs to be dynamic in in thinking and in in situations as well. And I know you have a lot going on right now, uh, so you spend some of your time with still multitasking. You're still multitasking. Yeah. I don't envision you sitting on a beach somewhere in Florida at the age of 85. Maybe I'm wrong about that. What do you envision for yourself in the future? And, yeah. And what what would what do you want to still get involved in? And yeah. what are you most interested? Well, in? I love um, where these businesses are. So Honesty is scaling globally now. It's you know I'll be going to Europe later this year to help uh, bring the brand to some of those markets. We've got some markets in Asia where it's launching as well. And of course, in the United States, we're still bringing out new products. So that's still fun and exciting to see. Uh, Beyond Meat is in a very uh, rapid scaling mode here in the United States and in Europe as well. Um, so we think about the upside on that. It's, it's just, there's so much more meat. I, I get excited about the iced tea category on a, you know, good day. It's maybe a $4 billion category. The meat category in the United States is about a $200 billion category. So it's huge. And, and the ability to quickly grab market share and make an impact is, is, um, really compelling. So we're, we're trying to work as quickly as we can to do that. Um, and so for me, those are two businesses I'm involved in that I'm still excited about. I'm still passionate about. I'd say the only other th um, thing, I, and of course for me, the other thing that is, is wonderful is our sons are now growing up. Our youngest son is uh, graduating from college this, uh, this spring. And so you know, to see them go out in the world and, and act on their values is also something that is wonderfully satisfying. And um, we managed to get four weeks together just because they were each in transition. So we got to really spend time together like we hadn't in, in years since they all left to go to school. Um, so that for me is, is something I'm equally excited about. And then the only other, I'd say thing out there, as I mentioned, I, I've had that interested in politics. I haven't, um, pursued it cause I've been so absorbed in the business world, but you know, if the right 
moment sort of with transitions with these businesses ever came up and, and I felt like there was a, something I could offer in the public sector that, that it might be interesting to explore. It might be disappointing given all that, what I've said about how excited I am about the private sector. Um, but I, I, you know, I certainly feel a debt to society and I feel like I'm, while these businesses are contributing, there may be, if there were a way for me to contribute in the public arena where I could have a positive impact, I'd, I'd be open to that too. It's such an interesting time to make that statement because yeah. I was having a conversation with my dad the other day and he said, who in their right mind would run for <laughs> office right now yeah. in the future? And, yeah. and in all seriousness, like over the next 30 years, yeah. who is going to put themselves into yeah. those those positions and you're seeing it now. I mean, you're not the same as Howard Schultz, but you're seeing, you know, sort of him say, Hey, I'm interested in this. And then you're seeing uh, people push back. And it's, it's just fascinating because on one hand we have Donald Trump who is coming from the outside and entering this space and, you know, is doing it. And it's in in some ways fearlessly, like doesn't seem to care what people label him or what they say. Uh, But then you have what's going on in the state of Virginia right now. And you've got, you've got, it just seems like, uh, I think there's that documentary on on like a circus and, yeah. and chaos. Yeah. Um, and so for you, what is underneath the thing for you? What is the if, draw? If I felt like I had um, a something I could offer that others aren't offering, if there was a way to have a positive impact that I believe in and I could articulate and I'm if I were uniquely um, qualified to uh, articulate and implement something like that, that might be something. I mean, that. but I say I don't feel that pull like, I've got to go do this. I, I, I um, certainly feel like these businesses I'm involved in are having a, 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 an important impact in the world and on the people who consume them and on the communities affected by them. So, um, like I say, I, I, I'm not um, it's not like I have a driving need to go do that. So I just opened up the cap of this great drink of honesty. It's ginger oasis herbal tea. It's delicious. Yeah, thank you. And I actually love tea, so I'm, <laughs> I'm right up your alley. But under the cap, it says, to forget how to dig the earth and tend the soil is to forget ourselves. Is that Gandhi? That's Gandhi. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious, what are what are quotes or frameworks oh. or philosophies that help guide you oh my in, gosh. In, in your life? Well, so that it's not an accident that we have these bottle cap quotes. It was something we started from the very earliest time. And it's something I always felt like, um, if you can have a way to pass on a positive thought, it's part of the experience. It's a little bit like Cracker Jack used to have the toy surprises, you know, um, and it's just like a little extra thing. And so those are very much, um, I, I approve each quote. I, I, uh, go out and find them and seek them. And, um, and, uh, so a few that I have internalized, well, uh, one is, it's actually something I saw on a Fat Albert cartoon show a few years ago, which was he who throws mud only loses ground. Uh, and that for me is, you know, just about just go out and put out something positive. You don't need to build yourself up by taking others down. Uh, the one that is on our wall in the office in Bethesda is at Honest Tea is uh, those who say it cannot be done should not interrupt the people doing it, uh, which is this idea like, you know, of course people are going to say it can't be done, but that's that's why we're, you know, not listening to them and we'll go out and do it. Another one is, uh, it's another Chinese proverb. If we don't change the direction we are headed, we will end up where we are going. And, um, you know, there's, that is true in so many ways. Our society is, is in the wrong direction. And so you, you've got to find a way to change the direction. Awesome. So you have progress, you have coming together, you have, uh, you know, moving the ball forward and even when others are saying you can't. Right. And there's such a nice blend there between mom and dad and sort of <laughs> what they uh, yeah. push, push down to you. Um, but I, I'd love to just conclude uh, 
there is a framework that I leverage and that I use with my performers, with the athletes, that your mindset for preparation is actually different than your mindset for performance. Mm -hmm. And so humble in preparation, Mm. but confident in performance, Mm. maybe even a little perfectionist in preparation, but then adaptable in performance. Mm. Ask why in preparation, then ask how in performance. I would love to hear you riff on that and how you think about it. So I think one thing that's critical, and of course, in, in a business is there's not as many moments of intensity. But I do think humility is something that um, is critical to have all throughout. Um, so whether it's like an investor meeting or a sales presentation, if you are, if you don't have that sense of humility, and if you're not listening, um, you will come off as someone who sort of um, is a transmitter as opposed to a receiver. And and the best salespeople, I think, are able to under listen and understand what the customer or client's needs or investor's needs and be able to respond to them. So that's the only area where it's probably a little different in business. Uh, losing humility is, and we've seen it, you know, in the what we see in politics, of course, we also see in the business world where somebody um, isn't able to acknowledge they may not have all the answers, um, that they may, um, they may not have thought about a particular element, especially with respect to um, the workplace, different voices, you know, a, a, a leader who lacks humility is, is going to not be sensitive to, um, voices that aren't spoken. You know, uh, you won't hear, you know, the, the people may be feeling pain or may feeling underrepresented. Um, and someone who lacks humility is going to just think they have all the answers versus understanding that their, um, their their messages may not appeal to every may not be heard the same way. Yeah, you have this amazing blend of confidence and humility. Thank so, you. Uh, and I think most great leaders need both. Yeah. And I think about that word hubris again. And uh, the classic case of hubris, of course, was Enron and yeah. <laughs> like having too much hubris. Yep. And but you had enough hubris to start something. Yeah. And then enough humility to navigate the waters. Yeah. And with humility, I'm curious. When have you been coached? When have you been mentored? When do you look for help? <laughs> well, the humility, right? Going back to my wrestling days, right? I, I had a lot to be humble about. Uh, and so, you know, you always want to uh, feel that pain. It's funny. It's so, so I'm Jewish and my wife and I always have this talk about um, why are Jews, so many Jews connected to social justice and, you know, the Jewish holiday of Passover um, is a basically and we're reciting about how we were slaves in the land of Egypt and and the point there is to really internalize that feeling and what that does is helps remember and, and the phrase says remember you were slaves in the land of Egypt and you want to continually keep that in mind so that um, to remind yourself so that just because you may be feeling good or in a good position now um, you know you you by extension, your history has has been in, in a much um, worse place. And so just to understand that, to sympathize and empathize with people who, who are either in that position or who are coming from that place as well. How does religion guide you, impact you? Yeah, well, I think that's a key way, is that sense that you try to give it, looking in that context, you have to think about humility. Um, you have to, there's a there's a concept in Judaism of, um, well, it's said, there's a, a phrase, tzedek, tzedek tirdof, which means justice, justice, so you pursue, but the idea there isn't to me, so why do you say justice twice? It's because you should, even if you do righteous work, um, you have to pursue it. You have to do it in a righteous way. So it's not the out, the mean, the ends of what you do are important, but the means are important as well. And so you shouldn't, you know, just giving, making money and giving money away 
uh, is not a full act. It's how you make the money that also has to be important. It has to think about, can you do that in a righteous way? Awesome. Beautiful place to stop. Before we go, uh, can you give a plug for both uh, Honesty and, and Beyond Meat? <laughs> you can't and, avoid me doing that. And, yeah. and Bethesda Green. Sure. Uh, and anything else I'd that you are to. passionate about, yeah. feel free to give a megaphone okay. Okay. to anything, including yourself and what you're up to. Thank you. So a few things. Um, yeah, Honest Tea, organic lower-calorie drink is, is wonderfully refreshing, is expanding now around the country. Our product line, Honest Kids, is actually available in McDonald's and Wendy's and Chick-fil-A and Subway. Uh, so that's really fun for us to see it grow and, and, and Boston Market as well. Um, Beyond Meat also um, growing quickly. It is a plant-based burger, the Beyond Burger, as well as Beyond Sausage, available in stores like Whole Foods, Kroger, and Safeway, uh, but also now available at Carl's Jr., uh, as well as BurgerFi and TJI Fridays, um, and uh, here locally at Silver. Um, I'm also on the board of a company called Ripple Foods, which sells plant-based dairy. And so, you know, the, the downside of a, uh, almond milk, for example, is it has no protein and it has a huge environmental footprint. But Ripple sells a milk, um, a plant-based dairy made with peas that is, has the, the creamy taste of, 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 of cow's milk, but also has the protein of cow's milk as well. But it's plant-based. Uh, Bethesda Green is the local nonprofit that I co-founded 10 years ago with George Leventhal, former council member. Uh, and it is a we have a green business incubator there, and we are also working hard to engage the community in Bethesda in sustainability and finding ways for them to to lead greener, more sustainable lives. Um, I also mentioned Net Impact. That's a nonprofit, NetImpact.org, that is doing uh, helping mobilize MBA and and college students interested in business to pursue careers in socially responsible business. One other thing I'll mention is that in um, my co-founder Barry and I published a book. It was a comic book called uh, Mission in a Bottle. And it's a fun uh, retelling of the honesty story, but done in comic book form. And it shares all the lessons and uh, advice that we we gleaned over uh, the 10 years of uh, launching the company. So Seth has nothing going on and he's never <laughs> doing anything. So I just want to thank you for sure. giving me some time and giving me some space and talking to a stranger. And not once during this conversation did I feel like you were somewhere else uh, other than drinking your tea. <laughs> and so I just want to thank you for your presence sure. and for your mission and your impact and, and also being willing to share your story and also your thoughts on business and on the social side of this world and all the great work that you're doing. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and then Instagram intentional underscore performers. And I just want to thank you so much for coming in. Great. Thanks, Brian. And I'm, I'm at, on Twitter on a Seth. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> thank Seth. you. Thank you for listening to intentional performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode. Jam. I obviously don't know. There's a lot I don't know. And in fact, I remember my, my brother sent me a long letter about all the reasons this was not necessarily a good idea, which was I had no experience. <laughs> and it's hard. It is hard. It was, everything he said in that letter was accurate. It's hard work. You don't know what you're doing. Um, and uh, But for me, it was like, all right, but I'm willing to take it on. I'm willing to give it a try. So, um, you know, there, there's off, as is often the case, especially in the beverage industry for, for some reason, the, the success stories are from people who come from outside the industry and look at it in a fresh way so they they aren't uh, constrained by um, convention 